0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. Hi, I'm John Simon. For this episode, we're going to continue that discussion of a recent case John and I handled, getting a little bit more into the weeds of specific things that happened as we got closer to trial in the case. The case got resolved the night before we were about to go through jury selection. We'd already done the pretrial trial And there were some pretty major pretrial issues that touched on things we've already talked about. And I think we won almost everything at that pretrial on our motions and on their motions. There was a couple split the baby things that I'll get into a little bit, but. You know, mention or use of the First Amendment or constitutional church state issue, which they had filed motions for summary judgment on, filed a writ on, which delayed the case that we succeeded on to the extent they still had that issue on appeal. Again, that was an issue for appeal. And it was basically a jury nullification argument. And the court agreed because they had marked like the First Amendment as an exhibit to the trial that they were planning to read. It was really important not to allow misstatements of the law as it relates to agency. I think at times the defendant had stated either in motion for summary judgment arguments or in depots that plaintiffs have to prove actual control of the pastor for agency. And that was not true. And we spent a lot of time in Voidir talking about that to make sure they understood. In my opening, I was going to admit early, he's not an employee, he's this, but you're going to get instructed on agency. And if it means this and get it, And I think we were going to object throughout the trial to them then continuously saying he's not our employee, he's not our employee. Right. It was just screaming jury nullification. Then the next one was tricky. And I think the court ultimately had to kind of take it with the case, but gave us some of what we needed, which is detailed discussions of their religious beliefs, because some of it you have to get into, but there's a line, I think, where it gets too far. And so statements like their corporate rep had told you over and over again, Jesus is the real head of the church, and everything is God's will and God's plan. The Jesus defense. Yeah. They're suing Jesus. Obviously, right. We're suing Jesus. How dare they say we're the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church the past fire demonstrations and his past disciplinary action they had significant motions and overlapping motions on those things. They were trying to keep out any evidence of other fire demonstrations, including evidence of the pastor having done them before, which my argument was essentially, OK, so that mandates a directed verdict on our claims for negligent hiring, retention and supervision, negligently permitting this to happen, failing to intervene, which the court already decided to deny summary judgment on based on the very evidence of all that prior notice. The one that was a little bit trickier was that seeking to keep out anything about the pastor's prior disciplinary action. And that's the one the court split the baby on a little bit in a way that I expected and I thought made sense, allowing us to get in to it at a little bit high level by allowing us to show it had happened as evidence of control and some of the bases of it, but preventing discussion about it involving any kind of sexual misconduct it was like something about contact with a minor over the internet. And actually, as I recall, Tim, the documents weren't that specific. They weren't. But the statement, the general statements indicated it was something bad. Correct. Like yeah. some kind of sexual misconduct, but we didn't have evidence of what it was. And they were saying it was some kind of internet contact. And so the court said, look, I mean, you don't even really know what it was. You can't sit here and say this pastor engaged in sexual but, misconduct. But, you know, that statement was what the head church right. had to make its decision. So she was going to limit that. She was limiting that to some extent because it's obviously inflammatory, but I mean, it also shows they can discipline him for whatever they want, unrelated to his actions as a pastor. So they were seeking to keep us from using their own church documents to try to prove agency. That was that First Amendment argument that was unsuccessful. They were trying to keep the video of the incident out as just too prejudicial. And that's when they were saying at the pretrial, I think we're going to admit negligence and admit scope of agency but not the initial step of agency. Yeah, which I got to tell like you, when goofy... I heard that, we were
1: doing it by Zoom, yeah. emotions. I thought that the case was over based on the statement that Defense counsel made. Right. Because it's sort of, they're trying to split it pretty finely They're trying to say he's not our agent. But if he is, it's within the scope. Right. Exactly. So it's sort of like it's snowing very hard outside, but it's not snowing. Right. I mean, in order to admit that he was within the course and scope of agency, agency needs to exist. Correct.
0: And so it was was a tough issue just to keep that video out. I'm sure they did their own focus groups. And I thought that was so silly. Because no matter what admissions they made, I didn't think the court was going to keep us from showing the video at least once. And so she didn't give a firm ruling on that, but she had asked, like, well, how many times do you plan on showing the video? Right. And I think we said – We'll show some short parts of it in opening and then just the clips that were used with the pastor. During I mean, it's nothing run.
1: else. The pastor's to rebut his testimony. I mean, Correct. I used it in his deposition. They were
0: disputing how right. far away they were from the yes. stage. There were issues in dispute that the videotape resolved. And it's relevant to damage. It shows them catch on fire. It's what the kids went through. Yeah, I think. Did she ever rule on that? I thought she made it clear. She wanted to see it when we got there and wanted a firm answer of how many times we were going to play it. So she didn't really answer that one, but I thought it was very clear she was going to let us show the video. It's just a matter of how many times and when it would get cut off. But they were so worried about that video that it seemed like they were giving up the case. I'm going to admit scope of agency to keep the video out. Well, the video comes in for damages anyway. It's such a fine line. It would sound to a jury like, wait a minute, you're admitting he's within the scope of your agency? So like he's an agent? Anyway, that's something that happened at the pretrial. But I wanted to talk about the pastor's depot. As we've said, he was deposed three times. There was a statement to the, like a fire investigator or the police from right after the incident. Then he was deposed in the first case before we got involved. Then he was deposed again by you in this case, pretty early on into the case, once we were handling the case went on for three and a half years because it got continued because of the writ that they filed right before our trial and then continued for COVID I think twice. They were trying to continue it again right at the end by hiring new legal counsel to try the case that they knew was unavailable and using that as a basis to continue it. The judge said no. But you took the pastor's evidence depot videotaped a couple weeks before trial, I think beginning of January of this year, because I was in a hearing for something while they were trying to continue the case. You were taking the depot and it lasted, I mean, all day, right? Well, I knew going in that his answers were all over the place.
1: I don't know what the guy was thinking, but he certainly wasn't going out of his way to tell the truth. Let me put it that way. By the second half of the second deposition, He was just refusing to, I I don't know, I don't remember kind of thing. So I knew going in, I was either going to get untrue answers. I didn't put it past him based on the history of what he had said earlier. I thought he was going to lie in his deposition. It didn't concern him much at all, doing so previously. And then when we really pushed him in a corner, he would just throw his hands up and say, I don't know, I don't remember, I've been deposed two times. Okay. yeah. And so I knew I didn't have direct evidence of it, but I was pretty sure that the defense attorneys representing the head church had met with him. I mean, I assumed that going into the deposition. Yeah, I didn't know it before I took his deposition and asked him. So I'm assuming now he had an agenda and he was even going to be more difficult to deal with in a deposition. So what I did is I went through it was probably seven or eight hundred pages of testimony from the prior two depositions. I went through both depositions, I went through every recorded statement he ever gave, and I literally didn't ask a single question, I don't think in that deposition, not too many, yeah. that he wasn't asked in exactly the same way, with the same words. And that's why the deposition took so long. We were 30 minutes, 40 minutes in the deposition, and it was, you could tell, everything that I asked, well, what do you mean by that, and this, and so it was, I'd asked the question. And there and, was
0: a lot of obstructive speaking and, objections and, yes, going speaking on. speaking
1: objections, all of this. And then I would immediately let them get that all out of their system. And then I would pull it up on a slide. I had it on a slide. But yeah, you had a PowerPoint with, right, slide. PowerPoint the de- slide right. in the deposition. And I would say, do you remember? And I had set the groundwork for you gave it two depositions before this. Do you remember under oath that this deposition being asked this question and given this answer? And I would read the question, read the answer. No comment, no commentary, just move on to the next one. And it got to the point where finally, about a third way through the deposition, I said, do you know this? And he would say, "I'm sure you well, have a I'm sure you, it. <laughs> I'm sure you have something with me saying it. Yeah, that's what he kept saying. And so, literally, that's how the depot went. And it just showed a couple things. It showed he was going out of his way to be obstructive. He had no regard at all for the truth." And we got out the good information that we needed in an organized format, something that we were going to use yeah. to present at trial. And that he'd met with. Well, yeah. And then, which uh, I think helped us on the agency. Yeah, it helped us on the agency because he has nothing to do with them. They don't know but him. But he's They've meeting with met the met lawyers. Him. And did he, <laughs> I don't remember, did he meet with them for an hour or so? I think he
0: met with them for like a day. Yeah. Or met right. with them
1: twice. Yeah. So uh, read both his depositions, met with them for a day, and then didn't remember anything selectively, you know, when right. I asked him the questions.
0: So it went, and you went through clips of the demonstration.
1: Yes, and the that was the most important one. thing because we had him. For instance, I show you how obstructive this guy was. There's an audio of him talking to the fire investigator for the state of Florida, and he answers a question. And I ask him the same exact question, and he gives an opposite answer. I then present him with the audio. I literally said, "So you're saying that it was not this?" No. And he had said the exact opposite the day of the incident. And then I play the audio while he's on the screen because it was going to be a video deposition for the jury. And I said, do you recall being asked that question by the fire investigator and given that answer? And he says, I'm not sure that's my voice. And I said, hold on a second. Are you telling us that that's not your voice? (laughs) I said, we got that from the sheriff's office, the audio. And they said it was you. Okay, are you telling that? Well, no, I think that's my voice. So it was ridiculous. Yeah, it took all day but it was probably
0: about 60 minutes of actual usable, usable questions and answers. Well, and then the new defense counsel in the case, who'd had the file for a couple of weeks over Christmas vacation and said he didn't have time to look at it, then did an extensive direct. And there were two things – if I recall, that he did that you didn't expect? One, an issue you thought he wouldn't touch, which is you had gone through in extensive detail that disciplinary file and the thing that had happened that had led to him being not renewed for his ministerial license. What did he walk the pastor through about that? That you were surprised about as i recall he blamed it on his supervisor
1: that at they the time. were all liars they were all right right <laughs> that's what he said he said they were trying to defame
0: him and he lied to you he, for six hours and, right.
1: and so talk about leading with your chin it was like somebody said it was Please a hit
0: conspiracy me. and i had right. a supervisor that didn't like me who was really militaristic and then the parents like all didn't like me and it was untrue and they all lied to the and general so the best counsel part, now,
1: now that you're, you're refreshing my recollection here tim I think one of the best things was when he was in this counseling after the incident so he could get his credentials back, we had a series of emails that went back and forth between him and the counselor, sort of summarizing what they discussed. And by the way, this was all in the head church's file in great detail. And one of the things said something like, I realize that I lie <laughs> <laughs> and I have a habit of oh, not yeah. telling the truth. Yeah. So and, you but, came back on yeah, your recross. Exactly. Like <laughs> <I> said, <laughs> So hold on a second. I popped that up there on redirect <laughs> and said, this is your email. I know I have a problem with lies. lying. Right. I realize I have a problem with telling the truth and I tend to not tell that, you know, this, and this I kind need of to stuff. work on that. and I need to work on that. And I said, so what you're telling us today, what you're telling the jury is that you have a problem telling the truth, that they took away your credentials in part because of your inability to tell the truth. And now you're saying that they were all lying and you're telling the truth. (laughs) Correct. Okay,
0: that's correct. (laughs) He said, that's correct. I said, that's fine. Thank you very (laughs) much. The other was, and I think it's why they spent a lot of time meeting with him before the depot, was to try to get this thing right at the very end, where didn't the new defense counsel kind of like lower his voice a lot at the end and try to say, now, pastor, you've had time to think about what you did and whether it was a good idea and try to get him to like apologize and say it was all his fault, and not the top church's fault, right? Like just to right. fall yes, on the sword yes, with him. Yeah. How'd that turn out? Very well for us.
1: <laughs> yeah. Seriously. They had gotten him to fall on the sword. And so they were very happy because, you know, the head church had nothing to do with it. It's exactly the way you said Tim. at the very end. That was the defining moment of the deposition. You know, they were going to just take it home with that. And so he gives them the question and it's worded perfectly for them. And good old pastor kind of squints and thinks and rolling his head back and forth and went, nah, I don't <laughs> I don't agree with that. <laughs> yeah. That's how the depo ended. <laughs> it wasn't his fault. <laughs> he's not accepting any responsibility. Yeah. So that was a deposition that it allowed us to piece it all together. And it's kind of nice. The usable part was probably about 60 to 90 minutes. That's what we were going to lead with at trial. And it just showed everything. I mean, it showed the context. It showed the discipline stuff. It ended up being very helpful for us. And part of it was we didn't have subpoena power. I think he was living in Tennessee at the time, maybe. Yeah, we could not. And we couldn't subpoena him. We could have taken the other depositions and used those. It wouldn't have been very organized it's not the way we would want to present yeah, it, it. It wouldn't
0: have been as clean. As
1: it wouldn't have been as clean. And the other thing, too, was we did have the ability to open up a miscellaneous file in Tennessee or follow whatever procedure that was to get them under subpoena there. Yeah. We'd go to Tennessee to take it. He had a personal lawyer who also was at the pre-depot party with the uh, defense counsel. I asked that lawyer.
0: When I was talking to that lawyer about agreeing to produce the pastor and doing one final depo in lieu of us, you know, trying to get him to Florida, even though there's no way we were going to be able to do that. I talked to that lawyer a few times, personal counsel for the pastor, and flat out asked if they were going to meet. Maybe it was a vague answer, but was not telling us they were going to meet. Did but, you meet? Right. I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. the way you're answering that.
1: Well, n- none of that's like, going You think help we're him. not you know going to figure it out? Here's the thing. <laughs> to me, he was locked in as could be. Two Getting prior depositions, to all of these documents, the emails. Being confrontational right. and
0: changing his answers yes. makes it worse.
1: And the other thing, too, I was kind of hoping that they met with him well, because it helped us on agency. That was the only issue right. that we were really having trouble with. If they're meeting with him, what else do you need? Something
0: else that was done in that case that I thought was helpful to us you know, we had our own damages expert. We had a life care plan and then a burn surgeon who did exams with the life care planner to help provide medical foundation for the life care plan. And I thought the correct move for the defendants was to have no experts. I mean, they certainly don't want a liability expert. We also had like a fire safety expert who was just going to come in and say, this is crazy and nobody should do this. But they hired three damages experts who they filed motions to insist during the height of COVID had to do in-person exams for each of these kids that lasted half a day to a day and extensive testing. I took all three of those experts for both of our clients. And I just was scratching my head going in thinking, how could this possibly be good? How can their answers possibly not be completely agreeing that these are devastating injuries? Which they ended up being, Which right? is exactly yeah. what happened. They had a life care planner and a, what do you call a future employability? Vocational rehab. Yeah, voc rehab and life care planner in one. And this is somebody who testified like a thousand times and there's orders that are like bad for the guy. And then they had- Which you didn't want to use. Yeah, then they had a burn surgeon and then they had a psychiatrist. And the life care planner was saying there are restrictions on the kinds of jobs they can do, but they can work. And we weren't claiming they couldn't work. And then the burn surgeon agreed with like the exact percentages of their bodies that were burned and they had permanent devastating scarring over 50 percent of their bodies and it was going to cause them this problem and this problem for the rest of their life. And then the psychiatrist was, I think, the best one who was like, oh, yes, I mean, this is like horrific trauma and there will be long-standing, like mental anguish problems for the rest of their life. And we were worried our life care planner was addressing that. But they had a dauber motion about whether our life care planner could do that. And so now we had a psychiatrist giving us all of our mental and distress you know, evidence.
1: Jim, I think we were talking earlier about what the best evidence in the case was. I think overwhelmingly the best thing for us in this case was these two kids were terrific. They oh, yeah. were just absolutely phenomenal. Couldn't have asked for better clients. Couldn't have asked for better families what these families went through with these two young children was just incredible. I was so proud and happy and honored to represent them because you just wanna do everything possible to make sure-
0: They were gonna do a great job at trial. Yes, absolutely. At the end of the day, you know, the first mediation we talked about, they had that legal issue hanging over our head. There was another mediation later in the case that wasn't successful. It was about a month and a half before trial and then leading up to trial it looked like there was a very good chance we might be trying this case but the evening before trial we were able to get it resolved for 21 million dollars between the two cases in addition for each of those kids the substantial settlements they'd already received and that was one of the things too we had a
1: successful conclusion for both of these families we were able to secure the policy limits as a combination settlement in both cases for 21 million dollars. You've heard me say this before, Tim, and there are cases that we got a very, very good result for a client, no question. But you know, I was looking forward to trying this case. Yeah. Obviously the defendants and the insurance carrier decided otherwise for us, but this is one I was
0: certainly looking forward to trying. So was I. And just one last interesting note. Do you remember the courtroom we were gonna try the case in?
1: I do. I do. It was in Tallahassee, and we went in to scope out the courtroom a couple days before because I was making my notes for voir dire and seating and all of this nobody was in the courtroom that day and one of the bailiffs was kind enough to take us through and he told us that
0: that was where Ted Bundy had tried his televised case and like mostly represented himself so we were looking to see if there were teeth marks on the walls yeah
1: <laughs> so but anyway, it was a great clients, very challenging case. We were able to bring it to a successful conclusion and let our clients move on with their lives. And that's the important thing. It was a good result.
0: All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon, and we will see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.